0: Thank you.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Ship Talking. I am Robbie, one of your hosts, and I'm here joined by Brandon, my best friend in real life. Hey, Robbie, how was your week? My week was great. I think somebody's been messing with the weather systems over here in Southern California because it's nice and gloomy today, but I'm actually happy with that.
0: How's it over in Dublin? It's gloomy as well, so I don't know, but I'd do anything to be on RISA right now. I'm missing being able to travel anywhere tropical. We had a few sunny days this week, which is surprising for this time of year, but overall pretty gray and surprising to hear Southern California is gray as well.
1: Yeah, we've been having some really hot days, so this is great to have a little break in the weather.
0: Well, then I guess that's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, super excited for today's episode. We're going to be joined by Dr. Erin McDonald. She is a astrophysicist, aerospace engineer, and science fiction consultant for Star Trek. She's been working on Lower Decks as well as Discovery. We're going to have a great chat with her about real science behind ships. It's going to be fun. Also, we're going to review last week's community queue and announce the new one. And then after our chat with Erin, we're going to report back on the latest all-hands-on deck drill that you've been sending in your training plans for over the last few days, and we'll also announce our guest for the next episode.
1: What I'm really excited about with this episode is we're going to really go into a more detailed understanding of the ship armaments with Dr. McDonald, and we're going to be addressing some of the physics and the science behind it, and also ship-to-ship battle, which is definitely a core part of ship talking. But before we chat with Dr. McDonald, let's move into the community queue segment and see what answers all of you have been sending to us for this week's question.
0: For this week's community queue, we asked you all to send in what your all-time favorite offensive or defensive Star Trek ship armament is,
1: and we got so many cool submissions the most submitted was actually a tie. Um, It was phasers and all their variety tied with a blade of armor, which we saw in the Voyager finale and was something that the Defiant had unlike any other Starfleet ship at the time.
0: I was not surprised to see phasers mentioned. I mean, they are iconic and something that's always been around throughout Star Trek's history.
1: We do want to include some honorable mentions that you in the community did bring up to us. So the first would be the cloaking device. The second was photon torpedoes
0: also not surprising to me we did see a couple mentions of different cloaks like the scimitar and Klingon ships specifically.
1: There were some other types of armaments that were frequently mentioned and definitely no surprise here. The spore drive was something that you brought up a lot too.
0: And aside from photon torpedoes, there were other torpedoes that were mentioned that didn't quite make the cut, including tricobalt, which were really fun to see up on screen. Really appreciate everyone sending in their answers for the community queue for this week. For next week, we want to know what one Trek ship amenity do you wish existed today?
1: For example, anything that you've seen in any Star Trek episode, series, or anything across the franchise, what would you like to see? Whether it's transporters, shuttlecraft, or uh, maybe a holodeck. So let us know your thoughts via email, website form submission, or even Twitter. We would love to hear from you.
0: All right. I think we've made you wait long enough. It's time for Dr. Aaron McDonald to join us in 10 Ford for a bit of ship talking.
2: great thing, I think, for the Intrepid is when you see it side by side with the Galaxy class, and you're like, oh, that's a ship. It's not that big of a starship, and because you never see it next to these huge giant ships, you don't realize that. And so once I saw that, combined with these pivoting nacelles, you start to conceptualize what it means more to be a science vessel. Mm. And I'll just give the quick warp drive thing, because it relates to these
0: Let's do it. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So
2: the way warp drive works is essentially saying nothing can move faster than the speed of light on the surface of space-time, but nothing says space-time itself can't move faster than the speed of light. Right. So you encase your ship in a bubble of space-time and then that bubble moves faster than the speed of light, propelling your ship within it. And so your ship still isn't breaking any physics laws. It's just happily living in a normal space-time, but it's surrounded by this bubble that's moving faster than the speed of light. And in order to build that warp bubble, that's what that warp core is for. That's why there's so much energy. You know, there's controlled matter- antimatter reactions, which release a ton of energy. They're regulated by Dilithium. So dilithium is a crystal that regulates these reactions in the warp core. But that energy gets contained to then channel and warp space-time around the ship. And then once that warp bubble is made, then the nacelles are really what sustain the warp Mm. bubble. And I do actually remember I had a conversation with Rick Sternbach and Mike Okuda one time, talking about the nacelles, and how when they were first designed, it was essentially like, one nacelle supported one half of the warp bubble, one supported the other half of the warp bubble, and then they thought through it a little more, and realized, well like, if one nacelle goes out, then your ship is like, torn in half.
0: Right, (laughs) right. that's
2: not ideal. So it's more of like a, you know, their power combined supports. If one nacelle goes out, then your structural integrity of your warp bubble is just decreased by 50%. Okay. But, yeah, it's not going to break your ship. And if one goes out and one is struggling to keep up, I mean, you'll fall out of warp. But it's not going to tear the ship in half. That would be
1: bad. Do you remember like there's a couple of times where they actually moved DS9? You talked about the warp bubble, but as far as ds 9 is concerned, moving this giant space station that was orbiting a planet with a gravitational pull and, and all that, how would that actually work, moving it? So
2: essentially, when it's orbiting a planet, it's within the gravitational well of that planet. Are you this analogy all the time. So if we put a bowling ball on a trampoline, that creates this gravitational well. So that you think of the bowling ball being Bajor, and then that trampoline around it is that gravitational well. And so like flicking a marble around that, Deep Space Nine is basically circling that bowling ball. If it wants to leave, it has to break out of that. That's what we call the escape velocity. Now, because it's not at the planet's surface, the escape velocity isn't as high. So it's not as hard to leave that gravitational well. But that's where the majority of that effort would have to be. And I think a lot of us understand, conceptually at least, that launching things off the surface of the Earth, the majority of the work is just getting that boost to reach escape velocity. And so that's what they would need to do. And then once they've broken out of the gravity well, um, thanks to physics, once they're going, they're just going to keep going. And as long as they're not trying to accelerate, whatever fuel they use to reach that escape velocity, that speed is going to carry them in whatever direction they were going. The big issue is that then they have to slow down at their destination.
1: So what you're saying is there's a chance that as they were leaving Bajor... They could have just went straight through the wormhole and just went straight up to the Dominion's (laughs) doorstep if they didn't get this organized, right? If if
2: they weren't paying enough attention, yeah, that station was just going to keep on trucking until (laughs) something was going to slow it down.
1: You know, (laughs) profit's willing. Maybe that would have
0: brought forward to uh, that epic scene that we got to see you know that giant battle maybe that would have happened a lot sooner yes. because that scene is just renowned by star trek fans as some of the most amazing ship combat oh. that we get to see in the entire franchise
2: one of the greatest moments when that weaponry deploys from deep space nine man oh it's and so the look good. on their
1: face they're <laughs> like oh they got some upgraded weapons going on Ooh, oh, we didn't know about that
2: <laughs> thing. we're in trouble now
1: <laughs> ship combat is actually some of my favorite
0: scenes to watch. I'm always like, you don't need to have diplomacy. Come on, just fight it out. But I think that's just my morbid curiosity. But <laughs> it's also because I love the different armaments. But when I think about space battles and the actual science behind that, like it just, it really boggles my mind because I yeah. want to see this as a future. Hopefully we're not having giant wars with the Borg or a <laughs> Borg-like species. But it does really pique my interest when I think about combat itself and the science kind of behind that.
2: Right. So thinking about phasers, I think the way phasers are discussed is pretty consistent with physics. It's this idea that you have a high energy beam. Right. And we know there are dangerous lasers out there (laughs) that you don't want to cross. Mm -hmm. And so to direct those to a ship makes sense. Phasers, I'm good with. Conceptually, they work. Right. Photon torpedoes, however, are tricky because the name themselves is photon, which implies light. But when they fire these photon torpedoes, we see the torpedoes move. So they're not moving at the speed of light this isn't a packet of light that's moving through space right so the way i've conceptualized in my own little head cannon, photon torpedoes are traditional torpedoes you know that they they're sending some explosive device to a ship once it reaches that ship then there's some reaction happens by which you release a lot of high energy photons which is essentially a nuclear bomb. True, okay. I mean, whether it's a nuclear process that happens or at the photon torpedo, whatever explosion is happening is not described. We can assume whatever it is. But the end result of it is high-energy photons, which will mess your stuff up. Not Mm. only have the electric component, but that shockwave of all of that release happening. And then the... um, radiation components because gamma rays are just light and so high energy photons are going to be gamma ray radiation which can do some damage.
1: In conventional traditional weapons shrapnel is also a component. Is there some type of material that will be dispersed like shrapnel or is that what you're mentioning or is it something along different lines because we see when a photon torpedo the impact on the ships for example there's a huge amount of damage a huge radius. So as opposed to the phasers have a more focused way of damage.
2: Yeah, I think it's more of like that shockwave from the release of all that energy. So that's why I used the nuclear bomb as sort of an analogy to that, because it's really this huge process that's happening. The majority of what's being released in a nuclear bomb isn't shrapnel. It's not actual material it's just a huge shock of radiation that gets okay. released. And so that's really the photon torpedo. But it's that shock wave, that fact that, you know, especially if it's hitting a ship and you have some components that are going to be pressurized sections that have air, as soon as any big release happens, that's going to compress the air, which then itself becomes dangerous. Oh. And that will break through a hull that might, you know, go through different, fields and then create shrapnel themselves. So that's where it's like, and I think more what you're talking about is more like what we would refer to as a dirty bomb, where it's like you've just strapped radiation to a conventional weapon, Um, but this is very much that radiation process just creates a shockwave that then creates shrapnel.
0: But then we got to think about shields and how those come into play specifically in these space battles.
2: Yeah, I really like trying to think about shields conceptually, and it kind of makes sense from what we understand about how... Maybe if we think about them like plasmas, or they, there's lots of sort of analogies that we can draw with shield dynamics. But once you start thinking through the logic of it, it doesn't really matter what the shield is made out of or how that energy is being sustained. It's just that it's there. Yeah. And. Really what it comes down to is that shield has to be able to withstand getting hit by stuff. Right. And so that's why I think phasers are so effective at taking down a shield because it's this sustained drain of energy. Mm. They're hitting the shield and then the shield's having to constantly fight that. And so it just brings the shield down. Um, You know, but we've seen other things where you actually see that hole start to form as the shield is, you know, being pinched by that phaser. Um, the way that I see it work is it's like, throwing out the word, the non-Newtonian fluid. That's oobleck or the cornstarch and water stuff. where. Oh you, yeah, okay. Yeah, you mix cornstarch and water together and when you punch it, it's solid. But if you try to just slowly stick your fist through it or stick your finger through it, it gives way. Uh-huh. And that's the sort of physics that I visualize with shields that those high impacts are gonna be really good against. It's the slow drain stuff that's going to be harder for a shield to hold up against. So that's why we've seen like being able to sneak through a shield or being able to slowly pass through a shield right. um, is because it's a slower process. But if you're just rammed by a torpedo, then it's going to be able to fight that very easily.
1: Yeah, It's always nice to hear that within the science fiction genre, there's nuggets of truth. If I was flying, you
0: know, an alien ship, say Romulan ship, I definitely picked a Daradex because you've got this giant giant center that's void of any kind of whole matter. Now, I don't know if I'd pick that because, oh, maybe, you know, I'd get hit less or, you know, I could use that to my advantage. But then, of course, the shields are around the entire ship, not just the hull. So it really doesn't actually make sense of why these hulls exist within the hulls of ships.
2: Holes in hulls, yes. (laughs) We answer that ourselves in current space technology Mm. and the amount of times you can minimize the material and minimize your cost to make your ship cost effective, Mm. if you don't need to have a corridor there, don't have a corridor there. Yeah. All you're doing is creating more points for your ship to fail Mm. and to cost more, because you have to be able to pressurize it, you'd have to be able to build it. Um, It increases the potential for leaks, accidents, to hull damage, anything. And we do this in space systems engineering right now when we're designing satellites and spacecraft and all of that. If there's a spot where there doesn't need to be anything there, don't put anything
1: there. I think we also forget that scarcity and resource management is something that even 500 years from now, it is still going to be a part. There's
2: always going to be a demand for self-sealing stem bolts.
1: Yes, always. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us
0: today in 10 forward. We know you got to get back up to the bridge and we'll let you go in a moment. But before you do, we've got five rapid fire questions for you. Uh Uh-oh. (laughs) <laughs> I'll read out the question and the first answer that pops into your head. We'd like to know it. Sound okay?
2: Bring it on. Why not? All
0: right. Your favorite ship?
2: Uh, Voyager.
0: Your favorite series?
2: Deep Space Nine.
0: Your favorite captain?
2: <laughs> Janeway.
0: Command science or engineering? Science. And lastly, would you ever break the Prime Directive for the sake of protecting your crew?
2: Yeah, I would. I'd feel really bad about it.
0: Hey,
1: you know, what's gotta be done sometime has to be done. Well, Dr. McDonald, thank you once again for joining us here in 10 Forward. It was great shooting the ship with you. We're gonna let you go back to the bridge so that you can go finish some more captain stuff. And Brandon and I are gonna go move into this week's all hands on deck segment.
0: For this week's drill, community members were asked to send in ships that they'd like to be placed, uh, let's say, into the proverbial space dock. or better known as names into a hat and they could be any ship from any species from any time and what we're going to do right now is we put this into a program and robbie's going to click a button and draw two ships at random and have them go
1: head to head wow we got so many suggestions and so many ships that you guys sent to us thank you for that so hold on so selecting my first one okay all right our first ship in head-to-head combat will be species 8472's bioship ah cool okay and what's it going to be facing so it will be going up against let's see here Oh, the USS Defiant itself. <laughs> of course
0: it'd be your favorite ship. This must be rigged.
1: Oh, this is awesome. Okay, so this is great. Well, Brennan, go ahead. And let me know your thoughts first. What okay. do you think about these two ships? Hands down
0: the Defiant. Now, the reason why I say that is Species 8472's bio bioship might be more powerful, but do you remember how they came together and did that giant focused energy blast that obliterated the Borg's cube? Right. The Defiant is way too maneuverable for it to get hit by that. So I would have to say Defiant hands down, if anything, because it could survive longer and take down the bioship over time.
1: I think you bring up a really good point. So in that, episode where we saw the destructive capability of species 8472's bioship it was a cluster i believe it was maybe five or six ships that were able to destroy a planet but to your point i think that the defiant is more maneuverable also you can't take away the fact that the captain and also the defiant crew would probably be able to handle that better
0: well that's true because remember each bioship was actually only piloted by a single individual right now of course the bioship did have energy shield but it was highly resistant to conventional weaponry but if we know anything about the USS Defiant, it is anything but conventional.
1: And I think one thing we can't discount about the Bioship is that do you remember when they go into the Bioship? Do you remember how, like, moist and, <laughs> Don't you think that Wharf would be the kind of person that would get grossed out by something moist? I could just see Species 8472 saying, we've got a moist ship, and the Defiant would drop their shields <laughs> and surrender. Just hearing you say that word that <laughs> is so funny. I, I definitely think many members of the Defiant crew would be grossed out by the moistness of that ship. <laughs> so... Probably. Uh, Well,
0: based on this quick discussion, Robbie, both you and I think the Defiant would be victorious in this battle. And we'd love to know if you guys agree with us. You can get in touch with us over the interwebs
1: via the methods we spoke about earlier. Or if you think that the USS Moist, (laughs) otherwise known as the Bioship, would win, go ahead. Let us know. We want to hear from you. In fact, feel free to disagree with us. Okay, I think I'm going to end the show here because I don't want to hear you say Moist one more
0: time. (laughs) All right, everyone, make sure to tune in next week for our next guest guest chat we're excited to announce that we'll be joined by oscar and emmy award-winning legendary star trek visual effects and ship designer doug drexler
1: he actually designed the nx-01 which all of you saw in enterprise also we will be joined by special guest host star trek online senior environment artist and ship designer nick Duguid. there is going to be a lot of ship to talk about oh there will be Don't forget, hailing frequencies are always open. Head to www.ShipTalkingPod.com to transmit a message. And while you're there, check out our awesome merch. Wear our logo. Send us your photos of you out and about sporting it. You can also send us an email to hello
0: at ShipTalkingPod.com. We want your feedback, your comments, of course, in addition to all of your entries for the community queue and the all-hands-on deck drill.
1: Also, we are on Twitter at ShipTalkingPod. Go ahead, reach out to us Let us know anything you want to talk about, any kind of ship questions, anything Star Trek related. And we may be able to bring that up in a future episode.
0: Yep. And the best way to support us is to tell your Trekkie and Trekker friends about the show. They can find us on any and all of the podcast platforms or just send them a link to our website and they can
1: get direct links from there. Until next time, stay dry and avoid those (laughs) moist ships. Robbie! Goodbye, everyone. Have a great week. Goodbye. Enjoy your week, everyone.